think this will make feel like a lot more like a philosophy class than like yeah a yeah it was, it was like, definitely expository and also mm-hmm. like i did not prep myself for how long chapter nine was uh-huh. oh, no. i read it all yesterday it was like oh my gosh <laughs> I I started really late yesterday and then finished up this morning because I was starting to like pass out. Oh my goodness, yeah. I yeah I, I managed to pace myself, but then it was like I thought I should I should go over it because like it's just like so dense or just so so much theory and uh, I don't normally think in these terms. So I guess which I guess is good. I guess it's good a good challenge to be made to think in different ways. Hmm. I will say with that chapter one, I was very much just like, if I was reading this for fun, I would skip it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. I might have been tempted to as well, but we didn't. No, 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 we didn't. (laughs) Look at us. I'm looking. (laughs) So one of the things that they have you look at when you're editing is like how the text looks on the page, right? So if it's just a block, they're like readers get intimidated and they'll skip it because it's too much and they'll go to the next Blake section. So like I was looking at it and there was a paragraph that started on page 208 and didn't end till page 210. And I was just like, oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I did it. Yeah. <laughs> but we did it. Yes. Mm-hmm. So here we might say that's just bad writing because, you know, one should be able to organize their thoughts a little bit more conveniently. Uh-huh. Oh, wait, I guess we can't say that since he's George Orwell and he's dead. <laughs> I 100% was talking to my one of my sisters in law, and I was just like, I would tell him he has to change all of this. <laughs> <laughs> Which yeah. I feel is not really that great to be telling somebody who's like a pretty well known writer, but I would have had him change something. <laughs> oh, I yeah, definitely. I also feel like this is somewhat common from writing from that era like I I've, so. I've had to read through some of the other books from around the time and just like oh my god mm-hmm. shut up <laughs> yeah it's been a while since i've read what's the other one the other the other one that was a different one was reading reading Le Mes, uh mm-hmm. the, the original mm-hmm. and like getting into it and like kind of like getting like like halfway into it before realizing there's actually like two separate books woven into the the book there's like Mm -hmm. the story which is beautiful and gripping and so engaging and then there's uh victor hugo's commentary on the history of the napoleonic war going on at the same time or the the french revolution or whichever period it was and so there's these periods of the history that have nothing to do with the story um but uh they're just uh (laughs) long sections of chapter and yeah after a while i just started skipping them because i realized these aren't these have nothing to do with the romance i can skip them Mm -hmm. i don't need them wasn't there also like a hundred page description of the sewer or something in that book? I haven't read <laughs> it recently yet, but it was just like, again, just this long, long, long expository that is not useful. It is not mm-hmm. fun to read. It's just awful. Have you yes. ever, this, this is a very different category of book, but have you ever read the actual book, The Princess Bride? No. No. So that one, it's very... It was a book? It is a book. It's a book, and then they made it into a movie. It's a fascinating book, and I really highly suggest you read it. But the the guy who wrote it, he writes it from the perspective of someone who is going through someone else's book and cutting out parts and just giving you certain bits of story. So like, he'll be like, 
So like, I want to say it's Morgan Stern or something like that. He, he, he had like 62 pages describing this and I just decided it wasn't necessary. So I cut it out of the story. So this is where we're going to start today. And like, it's just like this whole thing, but it's the guy wrote it. But the way he writes the book is very much like, I just got rid of that. And I got rid of this. It's really fun. I love it. It's a good book to read. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I'll have to add it to my list. I guess that I guess that would be really conducive to like the, the frame story they ended up using in the movie. Where mm-hmm. it was like, yeah. kind of this, this grandpa like telling a story and like, you know, overtly editing some bits or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really cool. The way it's written is very cool. Cool. Thanks for sharing. Maybe we'll have to incorporate that into our work here sometime, someday. It would be fun. Meanwhile, dear aspiring writer who may be listening to us, uh, take note and use paragraphs. <laughs> please. Yes, please. <laughs> Lots of little paragraphs. <laughs> It'll keep your readers reading. Welcome to the Word and Journey podcast, conversations with friends about stories that shape us and make us think, and some stories that are just for fun. We're busy people reading books in realistic increments. Follow along in the book and join in the conversation, or just sit back and enjoy. Our aim is to unpack the story and offer you things to ponder. Either way, thanks for being here. Welcome to the Word and Journey podcast, conversations with friends about stories that shape us, make us think, some stories that are really good and some stories that are more obligatory, hopefully, hopefully stories with paragraphs. Yes. (laughs) But not today. (laughs) No, no. These are multi-page paragraphs today. (laughs) These are multi-page paragraphs. Yes, Yes. It's no fun. I'm here with wonderful people, Jacob Schwartz and Stephanie Bennett. And I think we're all either getting over something and coming down with something because I'm having a hard time keeping a straight face. (laughs) We're going to keep the coughing to a minimum. We'll try to keep the coughing to a minimum. But yes, this is probably good because it's maybe one of the most depressing chapters. So maybe good if we have hysteric fits of giggling here and there. (laughs) Anyway, brief. So, br- briefly narrating these two chapters. So, this is the last two chapters of section two of George Orwell's classic, nineteen eighty four. And story wise, I guess not. Well, I guess there's some interesting story bits that happen, but they they kind of feel very secondary. Well, at least within the context of these two chapters, a little secondary to like the, the manifesto. That I think they. That I think we actually see. Wait, was it? Did we go through Hate Week? It's been a while since I reviewed that chapter. I think we there was Hate Week, and then they had to rewrite years and years of history all in like two weeks to account for being at war with a different superpower. And then Winston gets his book, and he hides away with Julia, and he reads it, or a lot of it. And then uh, Winston and Julia get caught and arrested, and, and that's very sad. And... Then next time we'll pick up in chapter three and find out what the heck happened. Uh, mostly, I guess what we're looking at today is this this book, this book by Emmanuel Goldstein, the, the character Emmanuel Goldstein, uh, George Orwell writing in the voice of Emmanuel Goldstein, the not the incendiary, the um, the revolutionary, the, uh, right? There's 
the revolutionary, the, yeah, the the insurrection, the insurrectionist. That's, that's it. Right. Yes, uh, that one. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm smart today. <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> We're just gonna list words till we find the right one. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's how it's gonna go today. Very much. Just lots lots of words. Mm-hmm. I don't normally think in terms of manifesto or I'm not even a philosophy student. I, I, I toyed for a minute of trying to invite one of my friends who's a philosophy major to like guest on this one and like give his take on it. And then I procrastinated and it didn't happen. And I'm sad. For for starters though, just what are your, what are some what are some of your initial takes on this particular manifesto and like what it is, what it captures, what it tries to do? I'm I mean, like one of the one of the big and probably main points of this manifesto is like the the way they got here. Um, there's this idea of constant war in the three superpowers. So we have Oceania, we have East Asia and Eurasia. And at the beginning of this chapter, uh, Oceania flip flops. And instead of being at war with Eurasia, they're at war again with East Asia, but not again because they've always been at war with East Asia. Uh, and they've never been at war with Eurasia. And it wasn't a secret thing. No, it's just like they've never been at war with with uh, Eurasia. Right. That was the information cover up. Mm-hmm. They had to make yeah. it so that we... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They got to go through five years. Mm-hmm. And so there's this huge um, idea that, you know, war is now constant and it's it's serving a purpose to basically keep everybody... Uh, content more or less i guess would be the right word but in their in their places like war is being used as this tool to use up goods so that there's a scarcity but you still need to keep people active so you still need to produce goods so instead of um building them up for like some sort of aristocracy um so that the aristocracy gets wealthy it's uh you all this idea of production and this energy of production is used on war and war machines so very bleak sort of picture kind of being painted by this manifesto. And I mean, the book, the book was already pretty bleak uh, when it comes to things. But now this manifesto just like comes out with like the the how behind the party. We sadly don't get to see the real why or the why that Goldstein wants to present. But yeah, that was that was like one of the big ones. Um, there's some other really interesting caveats in here, too. Like just again, the the really disdainful view of the low class, even by um, the supposed protagonist. It's like, no, the, the low class, they're just dumb and they can't think. They're not intellectuals. Like, <laughs> and it, kind of the sense that they'll, they'll never be anything different. It was, it's so jarring to read still sometimes. Yeah, he doesn't seem to really respect the, the low class and in a sense, like, it doesn't seem like he really seems to respect, like, authorities of any sort either. Like, I mean, I mean, there's not like, there's not like a whole lot of like, like anti-religious sentiment, like overtly in, in the book. But like, there's, there's a couple, it comes out a little bit here where they're like, like, I think the church is just kind of lumped in with like all of the other power structures that have been used to like, all of this divide. And he talks very, very particularly about he understands all of history as climactic clash between the upper class and the middle class. I'm being silly, um, but seeing three three groups of people, there's like the, the high, the middle, and the low people, or we might say upper, middle, lower, lower class. Um, and so like 
all of history is essentially like a class struggle um, related to power and wealth and resources. Uh, and yeah, like he, he, he sees like the, the lower class is like never being anything other than the lower class. So yeah, he goes into kind of how the, like the, the middle class will rise above the high class and then they become the high class and like just kind of how like the different ways they overpower each other, but that it all kind of still remains the same. It's just the classes, they change the name of the class, except for the low. It's always there. I would say that the yeah slightly slightly shifting the because they they showed us chapters three and chapters one of the the manifesto and I think chapter one was like it was like a rehashing of the whole like beginning of this book all the things that we as readers should have picked up on about the government and the party system and all of that is all things that we should have picked up on. And it's all things that Winston has been trying to, like, catch on to. He knows it, but it's just laying it all out there for him and making sure that we pick up on it. Because if we missed something, there it is. But I just thought it was really mm-hmm. interesting that he was like, this is all important. And in case you didn't get it, I'm going to write it out for you again. <laughs> in big, giant block letters and yes, big, giant block paragraphs. Yes, block yes indeed. Yeah. Yeah, I, I could kind of see that though. Where, yeah, like, like at this point, you've been in the world long enough, and now having everything made like abundantly clear, it's kind of exciting and kind of like, uh, aha, I was right. It is that bleak. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, fine. Winston was writing there. Winston even comments on it, and he's like, you know, it's just, it's just saying all these things that I know, but saying it clearer. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So it's kind of yeah. Funny. I've had those experiences in real life where, like, I've read a book that's like this book is saying everything I've wanted to say, only better. Mm-hmm. And then I get a little bit jealous because it's saying it and not me. But <laughs> but then I'm also, <laughs> uh, but then I'm also, <laughs> but then I'm also really grateful for the book because anyway. Okay, so a uh, thought question I had because that's my job to ask you as thought questions. So Goldstein seems to have some interesting ideas about equality. Like if I'm, if I'm reading it right, like he's saying, okay, so he, he, he has the line, no advance in wealth, no softening in manners, no reform or revolution has ever brought human equality a millimeter nearer. From the point of view of the low, no historic change has ever meant much more than a change in the name of their masters. And... I started wondering about whether or not equality is possible. Not just like, is it possible, but let's see, what are they? Oh, equality. It's a, that, that also feels like this really big term that needs a lot of, a lot of clarification. Like, like if he, like, is he talking about, is he talking about uniformity? Because that, that would be a different thing. Or is he talking about everybody having like equal amount of resources? Because that would be a different thing. Or everybody having like equal standing, equal equal function, or something. Something like I kind of get the sense, and maybe maybe let me know what you think here. When when Goldstein talks about equality, that's different than how like Thomas Jefferson says, you know, all men are created equal. Um, and there's issues with. Thomas Jefferson already, but I don't know. What's, what's your sense of the way he uses equality? 
I think here it's more like resources. Like it's not so much that they they're even considering like changing the class system, but they do make note of the resources and how the different classes get different resources and it's held back specifically from different ones. So I think in in terms of equality here, it's more of like providing those resources to to everyone in a more equal manner, giving everyone the right to, you know, eat better and have better homes and, you know, maybe to some privacy. But I don't think he Mm -hmm. is talking Mm -hmm. about changing the class system at all. He still like pretty strongly believes there's going to be a high middle and lower class. Yeah. And it's interesting, like the Goldstein character does bring up somewhere in chapter one, I believe, of the manifesto. Uh, that it, that true equality was achievable by the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. Now, whatever he necessarily means by that, it does seem to be a more ma- like materials or a- access to goods, maybe. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. It's an interesting question. It's one that we're like, we're still as a society grappling with today. What does equality mean? Does it mean equal access to all opportunities? Does it mean an equal starting point? Um, all these sorts of things. And that's like, it's a really huge question, especially when it comes to groups of people who have been historically underfoot or not underfoot. What's the, um, under oppression, sorry. Downtrodden. 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 I think I was going for like under boot heel or something like that. Underfoot means something very different. <laughs> uh, but historic cultures or groups of people or whatever who have been historically, uh, under oppression for, centuries like that's centuries of progress that other groups sure we'll go with the white cis male thing especially because i'm i'm there and i'm starting to see it a little bit more uh but it's centuries that you know i theoretically have had over others as far as progress goes which gives me a better leg up even though i may not have directly contributed to that like it's not like i or and i've not gotten like more money out of it or something like that but there's certain there's certain opportunities that are easier for me to access by nature of my lineage or whatever my group of people have longer had access to those things so that's kind of getting into socio-political discourse which i guess is kind of the point of this book it feels like it's not a very far leap from from kind of what the the stuff's talking about or i don't know like all of it all of it kind of blends together with only a little bit of stretching. So because we're talking about, yeah, we're talking about resources and politics and like government governance and everything. And I mean, you know, any given governmental structure exists in the context of its culture and its history mm-hmm. and is made up of individuals who come from other big, bigger systems. And, you know, it'll, it'll probably be a moderately self-perpetuating system which I don't know, maybe, and we can maybe even say like that system exists on a big cycle, which might be really chaotic and volatile and include a lot of revolutions. I don't know. I guess there's, there, there's an engine there of some sort. Another question, because we are Christians and uh, have that lens and <laughs> always think about that. So, so I'm wondering what, what should the Christian approach be to equality? That's not asking it quite right. I suppose Christianly speaking, so again, depending on what what we're meaning by by equality, is that and is that an ideal consistent with Christian faith? 
And I think I'm thinking specifically in contrast to uh, hierarchy. Hmm. Because I think you could look at, well, I mean, certainly, certainly within uh, the Orthodox tradition, uh, it's, it's, um, it's a fairly hierarchical tradition, tradition, or it, it supports hierarchy. And I mean, even in how, how the, the church government is structured and even in how they, they understand like household rules and, and gender, there's, there's more, more of a leaning toward there, there, there's, there's a hierarchy and it's more, I mean, definitely like, uh, you know, very respectful to, to all people valuing all people more, probably more like complementarian, than like hierarchical, um, in, in the strictest sense, but but it's uh it's not egalitarian i'd say that so so there's that so that that's one example but i guess from from your perspective from your traditions um how do these concepts all work together it's like a <laughs> sorry uh, it's like an old west movie who's going to draw first <laughs> yeah actually this is this <laughs> this is something that i've been thinking on a, a little bit more recently uh, kind of due to the nature of the work that we're doing down at the soup kitchen on Sundays, um, you know, working with a group of individuals who are quite poor and deal with houselessness and um, mental health issues, et cetera. And it could be considered kind of a low class, though not in the in the way that Orwell talks about, because the proletariat in Orwell's writing here is very much like the workers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our folks are almost aspiring to be workers. <laughs> which is a whole other dystopian thing in and of itself that I could get into. But one of the challenging things that we've been coming, that we've been coming across as kind of like the quote unquote leadership of this organization, we're not, it's just kind of like a collective group of individuals who are like, I can be there. And by nature, there develops some hierarchy uh, is, you know, looking, looking back at what the early church did, like sharing literally all of their possessions and I don't know what to do with that. Like as an American in my culture in today, that's a very uncomfortable idea, especially, you know, I just bought this wonderful house. It's pretty big for my needs. Uh, I'm going to have roommate and stuff, of course, but, um, and I'm hoping to grow a family here potentially, but, you know, at the same time, there are people that have so much less than me. And so in that, in that regard, like that's something that I'm still kind of grappling with and struggling with as far as what I should do personally. Talking more from the hierarchical sense, uh, hierarchy exists everywhere. Um, growing up Protestant, evangelical, it was, it was a short hierarchy, but it was a strong hierarchy. Like you had the people, you had maybe the staff at the church, and then you had the pastor and that was it. And you did not question the pastor. What the pastor said was law effectively. Like it wasn't necessarily as ground out or like um, spelled out like that. But it, like every evangelical church that I've been to was like that in some form or the other. And I think that I don't personally have a problem with hierarchy just as a as a tool effectively or as a as in a concept. Um like we see hierarchy even within scripture, you know, the apostles taught and um, they even set up elderships and deacons. And I think bishops is mentioned once or twice, um, depending on language changes. So who knows which terms are actually um, correlating to what we use today. And so like hierarchy is there, but it's more of, I still see it in scripture as more of a tool and less of a like, 
divinely inspired right of kings sort of thing that you know society and history has seen for millennia there are my collective ramblings <laughs> no i appreciate it it was very helpful Great collection. Um, it is a good collection um i probably have an interesting take on like the hierarchical of the of the church because i've been part of several different um denominations if that makes like they're not super different but like my dad when i was growing up he was a fill-in pastor and so we would go to different churches sometimes a different church every single week um and then my husband has worked at um four churches now um three while we've been married. And so I've gotten to see different ways that they set up their government, basically, because every every organization has some form of a government. You have to have someone in charge. Um, so like our last church that we were at, it was literally, you had the pastor and you had two elders and like the pastor made all the calls. So if if my husband needed anything as the associate pastor, he just had to ask him. And that was it. And that's actually, in my opinion, that's kind of a problem because if there's no checks and balances, you can do whatever you want. Um, what I really like, we're at an evangelical church now, and it is really cool how they have their government set up because you do have a senior pastor and then my husband's the associate, um, but they also have like a board of like, eight or nine deacons and three elders. And our senior pastor does not make the decisions for the church. It is a group collective and they meet together and they make decisions together, which yes, that sometimes means your decisions get made slower. But I think ultimately it's, you have a lot more say in your church. You have a lot more checks and balances and everything is posted. So like salaries Mm. and like what people are spending money on at the church. It's all posted for everyone to see. And so we really, we really like this setup. It makes sense. It's really helpful and it's very transparent. And that is the thing when you're looking, if you're ever looking for a church, look at how they, Mm. how transparent they are with all of those types of things, because that is important. Um, so that uh, that's one thing. And then uh, the other part, like equality, I like like um, Jake was saying, the early church, I think, does show like you're supposed to be sharing what you have and helping other people. I don't think we always do that very well. I think the person there's one person in my life who really showed me, in my opinion, what it means to be generous. And it is like. I started working at a grocery store. I was a super poor college student. I didn't have money. I ate peanut butter and jelly every day. And she would, like, if we were working together, she'd buy me breakfast. Or she would give me a ride to where I needed to go to get home after. So I wasn't walking two miles in, like, the bad part of Portland. And, like, it was just little things, but it was things that had a really intense impact on me. She would bring enough lunch that she could share with me, you know, if I needed it. And, like, I just think things like that, even though it may not be like, oh, I'm giving you all this money, I'm giving you a place to live. But it's just something to say, I have this, this is what I can do, and I'm going to do it. So honestly, mm-hmm. for me, that was like the biggest impact that I think anyone 
any Christian I've ever met has ever had, just because she shared what she had when she could. That's really cool. That's so beautiful. I think it's such a really powerful reminder too that like mm-hmm. like almsgiving, like it really happens on the individual, like unsung level like that. And yeah, you don't need to save the whole neighborhood or the whole world. Uh you know, you save, you know, one one deli girl's lunch. Yeah. <laughs> and that's and that's that's good. That's mm-hmm. that's a great thing. Thank, thanks for sharing that. That that, um, that makes me feel really, really encouraged. Same. And thank you for reminding me that my experience in the evangelical church is not the only experience in the evangelical church. Sometimes I forget that. It's all good. I think we can get really focused on our individual circumstance. Mm-hmm. I do got to say, though, I mean, y'all, y'all are talking about like your communities of like eight deacons and taking a long time to make decisions. I'm like, friends, like nobody makes decisions slower than the Orthodox Church. <laughs> <laughs> Centuries. <laughs> That's okay. Sorry. There's no, there's like abundant jokes about how like is like the Russians in particular find the longest way possible to do everything. So <laughs> yeah, just saying. Yeah, no, it's good. Yeah, and I appreciate that. I mean you're talking about like specific church governing structures and just thinking a little bit more like how things work here. Cause because you're right. I mean, having having just one one figure with authority is really vulnerable to like, you know, misusing that. Um, but then like having, having, having no, having no, no structure and like just everybody on an equal playing field would be like a, a lot of chaos. And so, so Orthodox, Orthodox church government is uh, set up in a conciliar way. So there's, so each parish may have like, 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 like a head priest and, you know, we, we go to him as a spiritual father. And in that sense, he's kind of a, a really central figurehead. But he's in communion with with other priests. He's subject to the bishop. The bishop's subject to the archbishop. The archbishops have a have a, have a group under the metropolitan and the patriarch, or whatever. And and it's part of why, like a lot of um, technically, an Orthodox church is not supposed to have a steeple. It's supposed to have a dome. That that round bit because it's representing a more conciliar structure where we're on equal playing field and with with Christ as the head. So a little bit of orthodox nerdery there i was thinking though so so shifting back to this idea of uh like wealth and resources and inequality so since since uh since goldstein's hierarchy seems to be really really centered on resources thinking about um well what does the bible say about this and i'm venturing a little out of my territory because i'm i'm a, I'm a counselor and fiction writer not a, not a bible scholar <laughs> but but the bible definitely you know, very frequently handles the treatment of rich and poor, and very, very clearly, I like it. I acknowledges there. There's rich people. There's poor people. I don't know if it like really acknowledges the middle class so much, but there. But but there's the rich and poor. And story was the story was really making me think about was the the the, the rich man and Lazarus as a really really blatant example of like the difference between rich and poor, and and how that can go so unhealthily and in the story of the rich man who is just so self-absorbed and preoccupied and like un unaware of the the poverty the suffering around him has the means to do something and doesn't do it and it, and in the end that that costs him his soul and you know part of what we learn is that you know if we're to strive for something it should not be for material wealth because that tends to kill our souls but at the same time we say like 
when well when you look at the the lives of the saints especially we see is actually kind of a striving the other way which is counter to what i think like like goldstein in in um in the 1984 world would, would talk about like you know the uh, goldstein says hey maybe we should we should be striving for like equality or at least that's like what like big brother wants like everybody be equal and like maintain the hierarchy or whatever but like in real life in the church like you have these saints who they strive to be poor and there's lots of stories about these these young men and young women who inherit these fortunes and they're like no oh, i'm giving it all away and i'm gonna go live in the streets uh or i'm gonna go be a monk or a nun or something and and that's part of their ascetic labor and part of how they they win their souls or and there's also more and more of this idea for those who who are already poor to to bear it with patience and to you know bear it graciously and to to be content to be thankful even while they're there so it's not and so it's not that we're forbidden from like climbing the social ladder or earning money or earning wealth or anything i think it's I don't know. It, it, it just like that's not that's not the bigger picture. That's not the that's not the that's not the life ideal. There's like material wealth is such a fleeting thing. As but we, when we could be like gaining spiritual wealth. And one of my uh, favorite thoughts from uh, you know Saint John Chrysostom in his book uh, on wealth and poverty. And I'm not going to quote it exactly, but it's something like the 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 safest place you can invest your wealth is in the poor. And and I, and I don't think specifically meaning like in the uh, the organizations that help the poor as much as like no like actually the poor like give your money specifically to them or something. I mean it's it's an interesting thing of like you know I I don't know about y'all but I grew up always hearing don't give money to the people on the street they're just going to use it for drugs. I think who is it Lewis had a fun funny quote about this like he gave twenty. 20 pounds or whatever it was because he's British uh, to some guy on the street and the uh, fellow who's walking with Lewis said something like, uh, he's just going to use it on ale. And Lewis says, yeah, I was too. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's, you know, I grew up with that mindset for a long time and I had a friend really challenge me on it. And this is definitely more in the, I don't know. Anyways, um, but he said, you know what, I... I have to trust that God is going to do with these resources, um, whatever he wants. And so, you know what, this guy might end up spending it on drugs or whatever, but that's not my responsibility. And so what I'll often talk about with, um, if I ever get on my soapboxes, which happens sometimes. Wait, you have soapboxes? I know I do. (laughs) I try to hide them away, but they occasionally pop back out. Is like we we are absolutely called to be giving, and if you can't give, if you can't bring yourself to give directly to the poor, then use an organization. Like there's, I I don't think there's anything wrong with giving to an organization. Like be aware of the things that can come along with giving to an organization. Like any any group is fallible because we're all humans, and so be you know be aware of that. And, you know, try and have a good understanding of where your uh, where your giving is actually going. And, you know, is it potentially harming people more than it's helping people? But yeah, I concur. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I was raised with the same type of mindset that you have, whereas, well, if, if they're homeless, they're they're lazy. They're using the money for, mm-hmm. 
you know, for drugs or for alcohol, you know, don't give them money. But I actually, I ended up going on a mission trip to Vancouver, BC, and we worked with a little Korean mission for a week and talked to people, you know, we actually talked to people who were homeless and there's so much hurt there. There's so much, there's so many reasons why someone may, you know, may need help and may need money. And it oftentimes I would say is not because they're lazy and not because, you know, there's usually something else. We talked to one guy who, you know, he gets drunk because that's the only way he can hear his kids' voices because he left his kids and he is so guilty about it. And I just think we we do everybody a disservice by making all these very broad judgments of, well, you're not doing what I'm doing. So you must just be lazy. Mm-hmm. You must just not care enough. And I mean, that's why I say like, if if you don't want to give money, that's fine. Do something. Give what you can. Give what mm-hmm. you have. You know, mm-hmm. even if it's just giving somebody some lunch, you know, at a grocery store. <laughs> you yeah. Know, it might do something. Yeah, absolutely. And you bring up such a really good, good point, and I've been kind of chewing on this for a while, too, is like the, that whole idea of like, oh, you're in this state, houselessness, addicted to drugs, whatever. Um, because you're lazy or something, it feels like a um, an evolution of the thought we occasionally saw in, I think it was one of the gospels where um, it was the idea that, oh, if you're, if you're poor, God is, or, um, or excuse me, if you're rich, it means that you're very, you know, pious with God or whatever. And so it's kind of like an evolution of that idea of like, well, if you're poor, then you're obviously doing something wrong and it's your mm-hmm. fault, which I mean, Steph, you hit the nail on, on the head so much. And it, it wrecked me when I first started realizing like all of the people, especially now that I'm working at the kitchen, like all of the people that we work with, sure. We have a couple maybe that are like, just not wanting to do anything, but by and large, no especially here in Spokane, it gets below freezing and above a hundred degrees in the summer. I can't imagine anybody wanting to live out on the streets and that mm-hmm. listening, listening and understanding real hurt that's happening there. I have one guy whose family is still trying to get money out of him. He lives in a shelter. Like mm-hmm. they have houses. <laughs> like what? Yeah. It's, it's always more complicated than people than I want to make it. We should make that into a meme, which would hopefully make it memorable. But yes, it's always more complicated. People are always more complicated. It's very true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's always a story to people and you should find it out. These are such great ideas. And and I'm thinking too, like, uh, you know, yes, it's we, we, as, we as Christians especially are called to be giving generous people because that is part of our spiritual service and part of, part of, how, part of how we save ourselves. Um, and yes, you, it's good to give directly to the poor. And if you can't do that, yes, give to a good trusted organization or, you know, in thinking about, you know, Stephanie's story, uh, you know, if you really don't want to give to the, like, like the poorest poor, then like there, there's a lot of other, like, uh, there's a lot of other poor people. Like I, <laughs> Stephanie, I remember I when we so lived like kind of in the same, like really poor neighborhoods. Yeah. Of Portland. yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, you know, Yeah. 
find a not you find a young couple or a single parent or a college kid or there's lots of people know. that need help yeah it's it's interesting it's definitely not the point christ was really making when he said this but it's still true it's like the poor is the poor will always be with you like mm-hmm. i i I don't know, like the context of what he said that is very different, but it's like the poor are with us. I am less better or I'm less off, less better off, less good off, something like that. I don't have as much as somebody else and I have a lot more than somebody else. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Factoring in sociopolitical, economic privileges and resources. Yes. Anyway, give it, give it, give it, give it, give stuff away. It'd be good. Also, I, I had this thought that uh, in in Goldstein's estimation, he, he he has these three categories, like the high, middle, and low. I think he forgot a category. He forgot the untouchable category, which I guess could be like kind of the kind of the low category. But anyway, yeah, he, he yeah, and that's I don't know. It you're right. It felt like there was definitely some oversimplification in his yeah. stratospheres of social yeah social, social stratosphere. strata. There we go. I words good. It's great. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm gonna blunt, bluntly segue us into the other thing I wanted to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> because I don't have pretty words for that. Streusel. That's a pretty word. Mm, I could go for a streusel. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. As we said, streusel we're just gonna list words today. <laughs> <laughs> pretty words. Okay. So the other I think so. Th- so within Goldstein's work, the book Manifesto, I guess. So this isn't what I wanted wanted to talk about, but it was it's worth a note um, that part of how a major part of how Big Brother in the story is able to kind of freeze the cycle because because he because ta- Goldstein talks about how history is just an ever ongoing cycle of like you know high and middle class changing places and like wars. Wars that at one point were for resources or territory, but now like they're not about that anymore. They're more about like perpetuating a particular political party. And part of how Big Brother was able to like arrest the cycle and keep themselves at the top was through the particular technology. And in particular, like the the cameras everywhere. So mm-hmm. so you take away people's privacy, take away people's private lives, and start to get into their their inner lives. Um, well, let's say, so if your private lives are taken away and like everything's monitored, like the only thing left to you is your inner life. And if you haven't had that developed, well, you, you've lost my, 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 um, slight plug for us to like, cultivate our own inner minds and, <laughs> or perhaps preparation. preparation. The, the, the inner, the inner sanctum might be the last, right. That it might be the last haven of the Christian, uh, in days to come. Who knows? But but I, I just found that to be a really notable notable point that that's why we need to have uh, the ability to have like uh, a private life or, or sacred spaces or the ability to not agree with something. Mm-hmm. What I what I really wanted to, to to think about a little bit was again in, in the part in the in the story world the the difference between the mindsets of the party members and the mindsets of the proles. And you were talking, Jake, about how the, how Goldstein doesn't seem to think very highly of the proles. And there's, there's some really interesting features to how, how they think. And so 
see so here's where my, my discussion problems you know would you rather be in the party or be a pool given how they think or don't think goldstein says of the proles uh, what opinions the masses hold or do not hold is looked on as a matter of indifference. They can be granted intellectual liberty because they have no intellect. And a party member, on the other hand, not even the smallest deviation of opinion on the most unimportant subject can be tolerated. Which I think is because he's been talking about how, and I don't think it's like a genetic, like a, like a breeding thing so much, maybe just like an enculturation thing. Uh, that would have been a fun twist. But like, the proles are kind of allowed to think whatever they want because it's just assumed they're not going to think mm-hmm. because they're, they're proles they are poor. They kind of got their basic needs met. They're not really allowed to see much of the world beyond their, their own work. And so they're, and they're given entertainment and things. And so they're just kind of like numbed into their, their position in life and, you know, given enough, you know, food and drink and, in that they'll it's assumed that they'll just go with that and and then the risk then is that they might ever learn about the world and, and create an uprising but but unless that happens you know for now they're they're kind of allowed their intellectual liberty because it's assumed like they, they don't have an intellect they're not taught right. that on the other hand the the people in the party you know goldstein says a party member lives from birth to death under the eye of the thought police even when he when he is alone, he can never be sure that he is alone. Skip, skip, skip. A party member is required to have not only the right opinions, but the right instincts. Many of the beliefs and attitudes demanded of him are never plainly stated and could not be stated without laying bare the contradictions inherent in Ingsoc. If he's a naturally if if he's a person naturally orthodox, in Newspeak, a good thinker, he will in all circumstances know without taking thought what is the true belief or the desirable emotion. But in any case, an elaborate mental training undergone in childhood and grouping itself around the new speak words, crime stop, black, white, and double think, makes him unwilling and unable to think too deeply on any subject, whatever. A party member is expected to have no private emotions and no respects from enthusiasm. So how I'm, how I'm understanding this is that the, the party members, they, they are taught, they are educated, they, they are given like a little bit more information but they are conditioned to make themselves believe things that are not true and in a sense keep themselves keep themselves ignorant mm-hmm. so so yeah so you see you have the proles who are kind of kept ignorant technically given freedom but they they have they have they have no motivation to pursue anything but then you have the party members who are telling them who are making themselves believe 2 plus 2 equals 5 and kind of keeping themselves subject to big brother by choice. So, you know, if, if I'm completely misreading the differences there, uh, I'd love to catch your thoughts. Um, but what are, yeah, what are, what's your take there? So like, which one would you choose to do? Okay. Okay. I mean, I'd rather be a pro. <laughs> See, that's the thing. That's the thing is if I, if I had a choice, I would rather be a pro because for one, I'm a very private person and I do not like the idea of constant mm-hmm. supervision. I'd rather be ignorant and not be supervised constantly, you know. But I also think that proles get the opportunity to marry for love. They get to have the kids that they want to have. And I don't think their kids are raised in the same system that the party members are. I mean, 
maybe I'm wrong there, but like party members, their kids are being in school trained to intentionally report on their parents. Whereas I don't get that same um, impression from the parole families. So that, that being said, that's another reason. But finally, I think that, yes, the paroles, they're, they're kind of choosing to live in, in ignorance, but they have the ability if there, there is the ability that they could someday decide, wait a second, and they could think and they could rise up. Whereas I think in the party, you're just stuck. You know, you might, you, you do know this is not true. You do know that it's all, you know, kind of terrible, but you're so like, I'm, I can't do anything. I am so, I'm watched. There's no option. I'm going to be caught no matter what. So there's no point in doing anything. And I think as a pro, at least you're happy, you know? Yeah. You might be hungry, but you're happy. And it seemed like they weren't necessarily even that hungry. Like this wasn't destitution levels of Mm. war, not fun levels of wealth, mind you, but like, yeah, I think I'd, I'd definitely agree. I wasn't, the book wasn't super clear on whether or not everybody goes up through these schools. It kind of made it sound like it at once, but then mm-hmm. not, I don't know. It's weird. Yeah, I, I'd probably be a prole too, just because the sheer fact of not having to listen to those awful TVs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. We're having them watch you work out. Like, what if I didn't do yeah, it good oh enough? God. Right. I already, I already get uncomfortable at a gym when I think people might be watching me. I 100% work out at home for that reason. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. Yep. Same. I got dumbbells at home mm-hmm. and yep. I swim, so I, I can't do that at home, but. Eh, bathtub. Just, you know. <laughs> get a big yeah. bathtub. Yeah. And then when I do yoga, I do it at home. So yeah, it just, I, I'm, I guess I'm thinking about how how we relate to how we relate to our thoughts or how, how we think about things. And as I was thinking about this and just looking at, you know, how did the, how did, how did the society get here? Obviously in the dystopian story world, a lot of stuff happened beyond the control of any individual, but, but then, um, you know, my, my projectioning, my projectioning part <laughs> was also thinking like, well, how, how real actually is this? Like how prophetic, was Orwell's idea or not like how mm-hmm. how much are we at risk for adopting either of these mentalities in in our society today i mean look at whichever factor you know you want to look at or not and i guess and i guess the, if, i mean yeah if you see like either of these mentalities uh there's this, there's, this, there's this mentality of like i'm just gonna like keep my head down and distract myself and like not inform myself you know, there's, I think that's the mentality people can get into or, or this other mentality of like, I, for however I've gotten to adhere or align with whichever perspective I adhere to, I'm adhering into it, like with an unflinching, unquestioning, almost like bombastic adherence, um, which a commitment and a loyalty and and a, and a clarity is, is, is a good thing. And and there's nothing wrong with that, but Mm -hmm. But but I feel like a really good solid perspective or belief system can hold up to some questions and some doubts and some really critical analysis. And if you really believe that, really hold that, and are really secure in that, you too will be able to handle 
exposure to like the counter argument and not die. I was jotting down a couple couple thoughts of like how to <laughs> uh, how to avoid becoming either of these people. So so some 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 of my thoughts, you know, to avoid avoid falling into the the, the pro mentality of just like you know eating and drinking and singing your life away. So you know, counseling jargon word is the the met- metacognition or thinking about your thinking. So. And in this case, it'd be thinking about the systems in which you participate. You know, think about the restaurants, think about the stores, think about the economy, think about, you know, think about the world. You know, don't take for granted that, oh, I have food and I have internet and I have Netflix and I have, you know, hookup sites or whatever. But like, you know, take takes some time to think about like, well, where does my food come from? And mm-hmm. and really, you know, you you work to inform yourself, you know, what is going on on the other side of the world? You know, what is going on in the deep south? which I'm making that particular geographical reference from the Pacific Northwest. So it makes sense to me, but um, it could be anywhere. You know, give some serious consideration to perspectives that challenge your own. Not necessarily to agree, but just to take you out of your own perspective. Mm-hmm. It's really important to be able to step back and see yourself in your own context and kind of get a sense for like, this is your place in the world. And it's not an island. It probably hasn't existed forever. And how is that connected to other things? And kind of on the other end, you know, how do you avoid falling into that that party member mentality? You know, kind of kind of a similar thing. Also, that metacognition, you know, thinking about the thoughts you're thinking, letting yourself analyze them and just be kind of curious about them. You know, being able to identify what are your thoughts, what are your feelings, your reactions, and what are your biases? You know, can you recognize a bias as a bias? You know, can you recognize an assumption as an assumption? Don't assume anything about you is in, is also implicit in another person. For that matter, don't assume anything about you is actually normal um, because <laughs> it might not be. <laughs> In this, I'm not necessarily pushing everyone to like deconstruct their whole selves because uh, that's not always quite necessary. I think more than thinking is, you know, and he's to invoke one of my favorite Harry Potter images, like like the Pensieve, where, you know, Dumbledore can pull out a thought at a time and extract it and look at it and just be curious about it. You know, especially if you, especially, especially, I would say, especially do this for like your like ideological stances that you hold really closely or that govern your life a lot. Like take that out a little bit and just kind of look at it. You don't have to change it, but just like be sure you're able to like step back and see, oh, this is a shape and the limit of it. And, you know, if you want to push yourself, you can entertain yourself with this thought of like, well, if I didn't have this thought or if I didn't hold this perspective, what then? What would be left? What perspective might I hold instead? Okay, I guess that was my soapbox. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> what are you? What are you? What else are you two thinking about this one? Well, I like. I do like what you had to say. I think it's important that we do examine what we are thinking and what mm-hmm. we are believing, and that it shouldn't be something that is that that is could be torn down just because somebody thinks something different. I think a lot of times right now we are quick to be really defensive if somebody believes or thinks something that's different from us. And it's important to, you know, yes, this is what I think and this is what I believe. But to have that grace for allowing people to believe something else and to think differently and even looking at that and saying, well, 
how, how did they get there? You know, do I need to look at what I'm thinking and examine it against what they, what they're, what's led them to that conclusion and figure out where I stand on it? I don't know. I just think we're too quick to say, this is what I think with nothing else. And we don't take the time to think about others and, well, why do they think something different? There's got to be a reason for that. Yeah, I'm getting yeah. back to that story and mm-hmm. getting to know the story in the context. Jake, you got any more soap? No, I think I'm I think I've finished my soapboxes for today. But yeah, I mean what y'all have been saying, just uh, again, hitting the nail on the head question. Uh, like when you when you come across something that's different, um, you know, don't don't just dismiss it or assume that it's evil. Like you really take it apart and question it. And that's going to have implications, vast implications sometimes on your own beliefs. And that's okay. And that's important. Like we have to be doing that. Otherwise, you know, it's otherwise what we believe is meaningless. Amen, brother. That might be a good spot to (laughs) pause our wonderful discussion. Mm Meanwhile, Winston and Julia are naked and being taken captive, <laughs> um, which sounds very uncomfortable and unfortunate, but that's, that's their own fault. So <laughs> <laughs> that, that the ending where it's like, you know, they were setting like, we are the dead, we are the dead. And then the voice comes yeah. and says, you are the dead. Oh man. Oh, <gasps> that's, Those that's were, some good stuff right there. That was Those very good. Bad. That was very, and then Mr. Charrington. Yeah, is, I was like, "What? What the damn hell?" <laughs> and he like yeah. changed his appearance. It sounded yeah. like, yeah, right. yeah. I was like, he uh, was like a. Great, I did not see that one coming. Wonderful character that like appreciated all this like history, and then no, <laughs> no, right. he's yeah. like. Magneto or someone is yeah. not good. Yep. Anyway, yeah. so that was that was disturbing. Although I mean, it was kind of like I mean, it was inevitable. I mean, yeah. they knew it was going to happen. We knew it was going to happen. But you know, so it's you know kind of satisfying that it happened. But also, it's like oh, you know, mm-hmm. I I am curious why it took so long to happen. I don't know. I don't. That doesn't make sense. But it's, I'm just like thing, if. Yeah, they were they were just meeting at this house in this room for like a month, at least, maybe a little longer, and it took a long time. I mean, I suppose you have to build mm-hmm. a case, but I would think that they'd have a case pretty soon. I, I don't know. know. Maybe they're just messing with them to um, demoralize or something. Maybe they were waiting for the book. Maybe. Oh, maybe they wanted to copy the book. Maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, Stephanie, I don't think you'd make a good thought police because you're too nice. <laughs> I'm not very good at being sneaky either. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. That's probably a good thing. I hope so. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think we are on the home stretch for this book coming up. There are one one major section. It looks like six chapters. What do you say? Should we do, do that in two swipes? Read three chapters uh, for next time or maybe two chapters each. Like this two is chapters. I think this is going to be a lot of like narrative content coming up. Okay. The vote is for 
two chapters. So we will do that. Okay. Okay. Well, the listener who is loyal or at least has nothing better to do. <laughs> you have your mission and your orders and they will not self-destruct when you hear these. Um, but yeah, check out that. No, but the next. thought police might come for you. Well, yes, they might. <laughs> they might indeed. So yes, the next two chapters, next time we meet and it'll be fun. Dystopic fun. Lots of it. So, and maybe we'll have cake and stew soul and Ooh. coffee cake. Are you going to ship muffins. it? I don't know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll send you Winko donuts. So. Perfect. Love it. It's been a yeah. long time. Mm. Uh, do you they miss Winko at all? Or? I do miss, I miss a lot of the people. Oh yeah, they don't have it at their... No, no. The closest mm, ones yeah. I think are in Oklahoma and Texas. So I do not get to go. And I do. I do miss oh. it. It's a great place. But we have Aldi's out here, which is kind yeah. of fun. Oh, I've heard Aldi's is good. It's a fun yeah. place. Yeah. I would compare it to Grocery Outlet, though. Not oh, to okay. Oh, okay. Hy-Vee is okay. fun. That's a good place to compare yeah. to Winco. But yeah, I really miss the people. I really love the people that I worked with. They are really fun. Mm, yeah. That was a really good crew. All right. Well, everybody who can should go shop at Winko in honor of Stephanie. And <laughs> especially, especially the deli. The deli is great. Especially the deli. <laughs> Love it. That was my exclusive role was the deli. <laughs> all right. Well, we will uh, see you all again soon next time. And peace. Journey is a podcast by Moses Bernabe. If you like what you hear, consider supporting the show with dollars, reviews, or shares, or all of the above. Word and Journey can be found on most major podcast platforms and on my author Patreon at patreon.com slash Moses Bernabe. Moses Bernabe can be found at MosesBernabe.com. Contact info for my most excellent co-hosts can be found in the liner notes. The podcast logo was designed by TJ Todd with additional development by Moses Bernabe. The theme music is by Aaron Esparza. This episode was mastered by Breakfast Puppies. Thanks for listening and see you next time.